0: It's another blessed occasion, isn't it, that we've been granted to come together this Sunday afternoon and do so with an interest in not only worshiping the God of heaven, but certainly encouraging ourselves in light of some more passages and some other elements of worship found in the Word of God. It is the case, and as you can already see on the wall behind me, we're going to come to the 11th installment in our series of lessons dealing with the Minor Prophets. We started Hosea We've now advanced all the way to Zechariah. He is the 11th in number of those minor prophets, and this next slide is an introductory one that will assist us to look at some of the aspects that gets us into our lesson tonight. We've already noted throughout the course of these minor prophets that these books, though shorter they tend to be, the name is not suggestive of their insignificance. Just because they're minor... That only means they're shorter. doesn't mean they're less important. It doesn't mean they're ignorable. It doesn't mean they're only trivia. But what it does mean is that quite often, as we appreciate the characteristics of the history, it will speak volumes about matters of application even for us today. Zechariah the 38th book of the Old Testament. It is the longest of the minor prophets. In fact, on the slide, I've asked you to notice it has the same number of chapters as Hosea, but it has more verses. In fact, it has more words as well, so it is the longest of the minor prophets. If I were to merely mention the word Zechariah, what first comes to your mind as you think about that book? Is there a set of ideas? Is there a set of conceptions that maybe immediately leap to the forefront of your thinking? Well, if that's not true, then I hope by the time we finish tonight, there will be a few ideas that will become front and center as you and I think about the book of Zechariah. As usual, the history will speak volumes about the nature of the background for the book. I believe we can be fairly brief about this because it is so similar to some of the history we noted with regard to Haggai. And so on that slide, may I point out to you that Zechariah was a contemporary of both Ezra and Haggai. We know that because in Ezra 5 verse 1, both Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned together. And not only that, they're mentioned again in Ezra 6 verse 14. Even beyond that, can I point out to you the chronology as it's highlighted in Haggai chapter 1 verse 1, as well as Haggai chapter 2 verse 1. To be very blunt about it, I've actually included both those figures on the slide before you. In Haggai chapter 1 verse 1, there's reference to the first day of the sixth month of the second year of the reign of Darius the king. Furthermore, you'll notice that on the 21st day of the seventh month of the second year, again of that same Darius the king, Haggai chapter 2 verse 1 lists that information. So you'll notice there's only a few months between the two writings of those two episodes. Not only that, as you look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, you'll notice a reference to the second year, eighth month of that same king. So we're only a few months later, and now the record of the prophet Zechariah. As you keep all that in mind, could I point out rather quickly, the people of God had returned from Babylonian captivity, They had begun to rebuild the temple, but they had only gotten as far as the foundation, and then they stopped. They turned their attention somewhere else. They built their own houses. They used the supplies for that purpose rather than the continuation of the work in the building of the temple. God commissioned Haggai to come to them and urge them to consider your ways. You've earned wages, but you've put it in a bag with holes. Now on the scene comes the prophet Zechariah, who, remember, was only a few months later. But could I invite you to note this? Just as surely as Haggai challenged them to complete that temple, Zechariah comes along and challenges them to live a holy and righteous life, a life dedicated to the God who loved them, and a life dedicated to the holiness which God demanded of them. In fact, isn't it interesting that the people had completed by and large much of the work of the temple by the time Haggai came along? As you come to the bottom of that slide, Zechariah emphasized the city of Jerusalem. He emphasized the work of the Messiah. He emphasized the kingdom of the Christ. Those points will be central ones as you and I look at this book. Our next slide. Now invites you to note this. On occasion, you and I might be asked what single book in the Old Testament contains proportionally the most number of prophecies about Jesus. Most people might be tempted to say Isaiah. After all, it's a big book, 66 chapters, but that'd be wrong. There may be more in number in Isaiah, but remember I said the greatest proportion. It's the book of Zechariah that has the largest density of prophecies concerning Christ. That is more prophecies per chapter. On that slide, you'll also note this. It may well be that one of the features that comes to our mind as we think about Zechariah is this. It's filled with these strange dreams, unusual dreams, sometimes almost shocking dreams. As Zechariah had these dreams, he was prompted, of course, to record them, And as you and I briefly look at them in a moment, we will find in them a large number of them are apocalyptic. Now that's a strange word too, but remember the book of Revelation is the apocalypse. So Zechariah is a book we likely will need to be thoroughly familiar with if we're going to understand Revelation as thoroughly and as wonderfully as we would wish to be able to do it. That is to say that Zechariah fits into a kind of literature like Ezekiel, like parts of Daniel. And yet that's the same kind of literature that we find in the book of Revelation. You remember Revelation. Dragons, strange occurrences, locusts, all kinds of occurrences, and often they have their background. They have, that is to say, the historical emphasis in books like Zechariah. I'll try to make note of a few of them tonight as we proceed through the lesson. The opening six verses of chapter 1 of the book of Zechariah in many ways are the plainest, the clearest, the strongest call that God ever issued in the Old Testament. I'd like to read just a few of those six verses. Beginning in verse 2. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. God just rather matter-of-factly says, Turn to me. They had turned their attention elsewhere. On occasion they had turned their attention to various issues and idolatry, but they had become apathetic. They had become indifferent, and through Zechariah, God pleads with them, Won't you turn to me? Look at this verse, Zechariah chapter 1, verse number 4. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me. Isn't it interesting that quite often there is an interest and a desire for a person to be like Dad and Mom, to be like an earlier generation, yet here God through the prophet, says, Don't you be like them! Because I sent the prophets who preached to them, instructed them, but the people didn't hear them. They didn't hearken to them. Don't you be like them! God thus now inserted the rather strong message Turn to me. Listen to prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and turn your heart in service to me. As that statement is made, let's now begin to notice what happens in those chapters beyond it. As you close that slide with me, could I not invite you to at least appreciate this? Those people had been through a great deal, they had come out of Babylonian captivity. They had begun rebuilding, but there were enemies, there was opposition, there were forces working against them, and one might have thought that God would pat them on the back and at least compliment them for what they had done. God didn't do that. First chapter, first six verses, God says, Turn to me. He didn't flatter them by complimenting them for at least doing something. It's all or nothing with God. He don't accept half-hearted service. He doesn't accept, in essence, second place to anything or anybody else. In that way, God immediately encourages them by demanding of them, turn to me. Don't be like your parents, your grandparents, other generations. You turn to me. With all that said, would you now take an interesting note with me about what happens? as we begin to look at some of those strange dreams that Zechariah had. Might we be impressed? Eight of them are listed. Beginning in the midst of chapter 1 and stretching all the way to the end, really, of chapter 5 and on into chapter 6, you find eight unusual visions and dreams. But I would point out that it would seem to me, and those wiser than I might have a better idea than this, but it looks as if these eight is such that there's a pattern to them. Vision 1 goes along with Vision 8. Vision 2 goes along with Vision 7. Vision 3 goes along with Vision 6. And Vision 4 goes along with Vision 5. That is to say, they are paired. And in that pairing, I'm going to try to highlight some of what you see in them. Let's look at numbers 1 and 8 very quickly. I've tried to highlight some of the main ideas. You'll notice it on the midst of that slide. In Zechariah 1, verses 7 to 11, in Zechariah 6, verses 1 to 8, we find visions 1 and 8. Notice what you see in vision 1. Zechariah sees an angel riding on a red horse. But not only that, they were standing in the midst of a group of myrtle trees. But sadly... And somewhat shockingly, there was a large number of horses in the meadow nearby. But those horses, as they're described, they had the following colors. Some of them were red. Some of them were speckled. Some of them were white. Now, we are told in those verses what the significance of much of that is. It had to do with peace. And it had to do with rest. Holding that thought in mind, now look at vision 8. This time, there are four chariots. These chariots are pulled by horses. One of them is red, one of them is black, one of them is white, and one of them is grizzled in bay. I would immediately invite you to note this. Doesn't that match beautifully? And doesn't that match almost amazingly the vision of Revelation 6? When John was told, John, what you see, write it in a book. And as those seals were opened in Revelation 6, John saw those horses. The same colors in many ways were presented. Now, one big difference, the pale horse in Revelation 6 had a rider whose name was Death. Isn't that interesting? And yet, as the background for that vision was seen in Revelation 6, it was found in in, in Zechariah chapter 6. Holding that thought in mind, you'll notice again there's a message of peacefulness and a message of rest. Now, although those first seals in Revelation 6 began that way, they quickly turned to something different. But that'll be another sermon for another time. At this point, what about the second grouping, numbers 2 and 7? In vision number 2, we note this. There were four horns cast out by four carpenters. May I say again, four horns representative of power, representative of strength, but they were overwhelmed by and overcome by four carpenters. You'll notice that that has to do with the overcoming of an enemy, an enemy that is now defeated, an enemy that is vanquished. In that sense, the great issue appears to be connected to sin because now look at vision number seven. Here we find a woman, strangely enough, in an ephah who is carried to Babylon, and you'll notice she is carried by two women, and they have, oddly enough, the wings of storks. What you find in the aftermath, though, is a cleansing which takes place the removal of iniquity, the removal, if you please, of evil. Again, that's why they appeared to be paired. What you saw in the first one, Vision 2, is restated in a different way in vision seven. Aren't you and I thankful for the forgiveness of sin? What was made available by the Messiah to which the book of Zechariah pointed? As you hold that in mind, what about numbers three and six? Let me turn our slide to that one. As you look at Zechariah two compared to Zechariah five, you quickly observe this. In vision number three, Zechariah saw a man with a measuring line. You'd call it a measuring tape. He was measuring the distance of something. You'll notice that that in his measuring, he was told to measure Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was a city, and you may think, well, that's odd. Using a measuring tape to measure a whole city? Well, there's going to be a great significance in that. Because notice what was involved in it. The passages identify that the people of Jerusalem, obviously, God expected of them to live lives that were holy and lives that were pure and lives that were dedicated to the God of heaven. And so they were being measured to see how well they were doing that. Now look at number six. Zechariah saw a flying roll. Can you imagine a scroll flying through the air? That's what Zechariah saw in his dream but on it was a message that had to do with consumption for people who were evil, like thieves, like false swearers. Notice again the similarity. So Numbers 3 and 6 appear to be, again, the demand for holy living and God's displeasure with those who did not live that way. Can't you and I learn from that that God still is displeased when you and I do not live lives of holiness For without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Are we not told among those matters in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they're the ones that will see God. Beyond that, let's look at the last pair, visions 4 and 5. This is found in chapters 3 and 4. This one is, again, a very intriguing one. Zechariah, what did you see? I saw Joshua. Joshua who was the high priest at that time. And I also saw an angel, and I saw Satan. But note the following as well. There were filthy garments on the high priest, and those garments were replaced by garments having to do with a branch. Now please note that branch is all capitals. It's a reference to Jesus the Christ. He is the branch We learn about him in Jeremiah 23, and we also see beautifully about him in other passages connected with the book of Zechariah, not the least of which is the lesson text that was read earlier tonight in our hearing. One final thing about that last one, number five. A golden candlestick, and there were two olive trees, and that had to do with the success of the work of Zerubbabel. Could I pause long enough to say that will be a, tra- a dramatic help to us as we rightly divide Revelation 11. What John saw there were two olive trees providing the necessary oil for the candlestick, and that's exactly what was a part of Zachariah's dream here. In many ways, this passage will help us as we understand Revelation chapter 11. As you and I close that slide, Through those first six chapters, there are many references to the city of Jerusalem. Statements about the requirement of purity and the requirement of holiness and how that God was look upon Jerusalem with favor and grant again that there would be many peoples living therein. As we turn the slide to our next one, could I not begin to invite you to note a few lessons as we begin to launch into the second half of the book? Remember, Zechariah has 14 chapters. We've really only looked at the first 6. Some of these lessons, however, will highlight the beauty and the majesty of not only these chapters, but some of those chapters yet to come. First of all, what about Zechariah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1? If I could invite you to note the language. It says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth Day of the ninth month, even in Chislew, when they had sent unto the house of God Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to pray before the Lord. There were some men who came before the temple and they had a question. They asked Zechariah a question, and the question had to do with what about the characteristics? Would you please note with me the way they worded it? Verse number 3, And to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? They had a question. We in the past, they would say, in the fifth month have separated ourselves, and we want to know should we continue this now that we have come back from captivity and are again in Jerusalem. Should we continue this? Would you be impressed with how God through Zechariah answers? Verse number 4. Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, speaking to all the people of the land, and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat... And when ye did drink, did ye not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? God says, for that 70 year period when you were in captivity, you did these fasts, but they weren't directed necessarily to me. For that reason, he now says this Verse 7 Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity? and the cities thereof round about her, when men inhabited the south and the plain. In the verses that followed, God then demanded this of them. Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, nor the stranger, nor the poor, And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in his heart. This is what I want now. You treat everybody the way you want to be treated. Sounds like the golden rule of Matthew 7, verse 12, doesn't it? Whatsoever you would wish others to do to you, do that to them. In this instance, don't you be oppressing orphans, don't be oppressing widows, don't be oppressing those that are poor and destitute. Make every judgment true. He goes on to say, don't imagine evil in your heart against other people. That's some of the finest descriptions of the gospel you could ever wish to see. And that was found in the book of Zechariah. One last thing on on that slide. And it might well be this. In that opening lesson... The true fast, which the people were expected, was a fast of dedicated service. It wasn't just doing without food in the fifth month. God wanted them to execute right judgments, to live a holy life, to treat others the way that they would want to be treated, and to do that consistent with what the will of God was. What about a second lesson? You can already tell what the idea behind this one is. The times of the Messiah. In many ways, I have been so brief. Many prophecies concerning Jesus are to be found in this book. I've only selected a few with the hope that our appetite will be whetted to appreciate what God revealed through the prophet Zechariah many, many centuries before the Lord ever came into this world. First of all, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. That was the lesson text that was read just a few minutes ago. Could I step through that pair of verses and do it with an idea to highlight some of what you therein read? And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man, whose name is the branch. So we have reference to a man whose name is the branch. That's Jesus. May you and I never forget that He was in the flesh. Hebrews 2.14 reminds us that He had flesh and blood just like you and I. But the verse doesn't stop, for it goes on to say, He shall grow up out of His place. Reminds us of Isaiah 53.2. And then it says, He shall build the temple of the Lord. Is it any wonder that Jesus said in John chapter 2, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. There was a prophecy of what, what Jesus would do. But he wasn't talking, you see, about any physical edifice. He was talking about his body. Let's read on into the next verse. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall see it and rule upon his throne. Please take note with me. This branch was identically said to be king. He was going to rule on his throne. But it doesn't stop there either. He shall be a priest upon his throne. Would you pause long enough to ponder? In the Old Testament era, the priesthood was separate and apart from the kingship. We had those in the lineage of David who ruled on the throne. Isn't it true that David sprang out of the tribe known as Judah? The priest came out of the tribe of Levi, and the two were different. You could not have had a priest serving as a prophet, I'm sorry, as a king at the same time under the line of David. It could not have been. And yet here we find a prophecy. In the kingdom of the Messiah, the same one sitting on the throne as king will also serve as priest. King and priest at the same time. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus not only is king of kings, 1 Timothy 6.15, He's not only king of kings, Revelation 17, 14. He is the priest. He is our high priest, Hebrews 8, verse 1, Hebrews 3, verse 1. King and priest at the same time. You and I must be astounded to appreciate the reality of that kind of prophecy. You may notice I did refer to the old law of Moses. If we were to predate that, however... You do find in the Old Testament a character who was a priest and a king at the same time, and what an interesting figure he was. In Jeremiah, I'm sorry, in Genesis 14, we encounter him. His name was Melchizedek. He was king and priest of Salem. No wonder the Hebrew writer would say Jesus is a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5 verse 6 because again, he served as priest and king simultaneously. You and I, I believe, can quickly say that those in our world today who do not believe the Lord's kingdom has yet come, there are many who think the thousand-year reign on earth when Jesus supposedly comes back is when the kingdom shall begin. And those people think the kingdom has not yet begun. All of us who can see through a ladder, can see that absolutely is not consistent with Zechariah. Zechariah said king and priest at the same time. Now those people who think that Jesus today is serving as the priest, but yet the kingdom has not started, the two don't match. Aren't you and I thankful for the true preaching of the Word of God that puts these things simultaneous? Look at the next one. In Zechariah 9, verse number 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem, O daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Here we find in the writing of Zechariah a prophecy about the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's recorded in Matthew 21, You recall as they strode palm branches in front of him, the Lord rode into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey, just like Zechariah said he would. He didn't ride on a black stallion. He didn't ride on a white prancing horse. He was a donkey, just like Zechariah foretold it. No wonder then Zechariah had so much to share with us. And you'll notice on the slide that that same one riding on that donkey brought salvation. He was the one that brought it, just as you and I learned in our lesson this morning. What about the next idea? The next one that you and I might consider. Zechariah 11. Would you look with me interestingly at verse number 1 of that chapter? Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that thy fire may devour thy cedars. Now, we'll not read the fullness of that chapter, but there are many things therein shared that highlight some of the details about the rejection of the Christ. Could I merely highlight as you come to verse number 10? And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord, and I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. When Judas betrayed the Lord, what was the bargaining price that he made for the Master? You and I know in the book of Matthew are told exactly what it was, thirty pieces of silver And Zechariah foretold it hundreds of years before the eventuality of it. Don't you find that amazing? The betrayal of the Master. Look at another one. I've asked you to consider this one in Zechariah 13. First of all, verse number 1. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin, and for uncleanness. Would you please note with me, a fountain was going to be opened that would generate and produce cleansing from sin. What was that fountain? The blood of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 13, 1 foretold the opening of the fountain. In essence, the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. How do we know that's what it refers to? Look six verses later. Verses 7 and following we find that Jesus identically quoted this passage the night prior to his crucifixion when, in fact, the shepherd was smitten and the sheep were scattered. Jesus quoted that, applying it to himself. Zechariah thus spoke about Jesus, and not only that, he said, Thy fellow, in verse 7, fellow Jehovah, one likened to God. You and I noted earlier in this book of Zechariah, Jesus was said to be a man, now he said to be God. May we never call into question, He was fully man, He was fully God. It is with that, we'll close that slide like this. Didn't John the Baptist say in John 1.29, as he spoke about the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You and I perhaps can think about the book of Zechariah as we ponder a passage like that one the amazing work of God's redemption, through Jesus, many of its particulars were foretold. Many of its particulars were highlighted in these 14 chapters of the book of Zechariah. Let's transition from this slide to our next one and conclude our lesson like this. The book of Zechariah is a rather scintillating Old Testament minor prophet filled with these unusual visions, filled with these unusual references, but throughout it we find a powerful note of restoration a promise the coming of the messiah and all the blessings that would come along with him including the fountain for cleansing that would be opened outside jerusalem that fountain has been opened that fountain is now available the blood of jesus christ can be easily reached It requires us to set aside ourselves. If any man will come unto me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, verse 23. Tonight, maybe in this assembly, someone has forgotten or at least lost sight of just what Jesus accomplished. Maybe the book of Zechariah has refocused our appreciation and brought us back to the scene of that great work through Jesus the Christ. If someone would wish to return to your first love tonight, to come back to the one who first loved you and the one who died for you, we'd be honored to assist and to help. We would only ask that you certainly, as the Lord demands, make repentance of those sins, make confession of them, and we will be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. Tonight, if we could be of assistance and help, we issue this invitation and invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.